Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes. We're releasing a special Friday episode to discuss the major event that's going on in the world right now, which is the uh, war and the atrocities in Israel and Gaza. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is because it is an all-consuming news issue. But secondly, because you especially, and to a certain extent, I've been in Israel several times. We have friends in Israel. We mm-hmm. uh, have spent a lot of time studying modern Israel, the state of Israel, and the things that go on over there. And uh, we're both planning trips to Israel. And so this week, right. I, I know you probably, like me, have been getting a lot of questions. Are we going to go on our trip? You know, what's going on? And so we've just spent a lot of time looking at the news, reading what's going on, talking to people, and at the same time, drawing on experience and background knowledge. I know that your series from last summer on the making of modern Israel is one that everybody should go back and watch. And because those those four episodes, uh, four classes that you did, will give you the essential history of how we came to be in the place we are now. And in fact, a lot of what we're going to talk about today draws its roots from if you know how this got set up, you know, some of this right. makes sense. Or if you know, you know what's happened 50 years ago, you'll start to see the geopolitical uh, strings that are starting to be pulled on. And, uh, you know, all that to say it's a very complicated issue. But the more you know the history, the greater ability you have to start to make sense of what's going on and hopefully see what's going to happen in the future. So uh, maybe start off and let's just talk about what happened. So what what was the catalyst and what has happened in Israel and uh, maybe why this is different than any past conflicts? Yeah, that's a great place to start. The Gaza Strip is a strip of land in the southern part of Israel. And the Gaza Strip is about 25 miles long, and it's approximately six miles wide. It borders Israel, of course, but what a lot of people forget is it also borders Egypt. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear the narrative of these people are being corralled there and kept there by Israel. But they, Gaza also has a southern border with Egypt, who is Muslim, as they are Muslim. And so you made a good point is it's complicated. And sometimes when people try to oversimplify it, uh, you really end up missing some of the key points. So mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip is home to 2.3 million people, and it's currently governed by a terrorist organization. This is the government of Gaza called Hamas. Hamas has a history of firing rockets, really not well-made rockets, not very accurate rockets, into Israel periodically. But this was different. And on October 7th, last Saturday, they fired thousands of rockets that overwhelmed the Israeli Iron Dome ability to stop a certain amount of those rockets. And, Cole, what happened is they shot rockets that had a far greater range than anything before. Now, they're supplied, I think most people know this, by Iran, but they had managed to get thousands of much better technology rockets. So two things happened. One, they shot rockets. And one of the things that's different is that these rockets were far more powerful than anything before. The second thing that happened is there is a fence between Israel and Gaza, is that Hamas and the Hamas fighters, young, just young men, I don't think of this as an army, think of this as a terrorist organization, bulldozed a few places and poured through and attacked Israeli settlements. Didn't attack Israeli soldiers or Israeli military outposts, they attacked small Israeli towns, settlements, village, think of it as a village villages and murdered men, women, and children. Uh, And you've probably heard some of the atrocities. So that's what happened. You had a missile attack and you had attack on Israeli civilians living in the vicinity of the border. There are no Israeli settlements in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, but there are outside the Gaza Strip in the state of Israel. 
So that's what happened. What made it different was the number and sophistication of the missiles and the absolutely horrendous atrocities of men, women, children being killed, paraded uh, before cameras. And Hamas, one of the things that makes this so clear is it's really not much, it's not a question of did this really happen because Hamas themselves broadcast this on social media, wanting the world to see what they had done. Mm-hmm. So that happened this past Saturday. And needless to say, this was far, far greater than firing a few missiles because that happens on almost a routine basis there. Right. That's the big difference, I think, when I saw things unfolding this weekend is there's always scuffles and, you know, man, man-made uh, attacks and things that are going on in small groups in Gaza. There's there's other Palestinian areas, settlements of Arabs within mm-hmm. Israel where you see skirmishes break out. Of course, Hezbollah in the north. Uh, most recently, there was a huge onslaught of missiles from Hezbollah. Israel, if you look at the map of the Muslim world, is a tiny little speck in the middle of mostly enemies. Now, that the tide on that has been changing, which I think we're going to get to in a minute, uh, uh-huh. is, is maybe some of the reason why we're seeing what's happening happen right now. But what was so different about this, as you said, was the scale, the technology, the brutality. There, It's one thing to fire a rocket. It's one thing for a suicide bomber to blow themselves up in a crowded area. It's another thing for people to come in and commit just the horrible things. And we won't even detail them because we know that, you know, there may be people listening with kids or in the car. But on the, on the one hand, you know, we don't even want to think about these things. There's something that about this that you would think this couldn't happen in any human civilization. It's worse mm-hmm. in a lot of ways than what we consider the boundaries of human behavior. But at the same time, we need to come to grips with the fact that there are people in the world who are doing these kinds of things. This this evil does exist and it will justify uh, the response. And we'll talk about maybe what response is justified and what isn't, but you just have to know the depth of the brutality and what these people were doing to Israeli people uh, to understand why the response has been so strong from Israel and why people are treating this like a very different uh, encounter. You know, the other thing, and, and there's a there's a huge political angle to this, and I'll just say from the get-go, we really don't know all the information, and probably as citizens, we won't know all the information that you need to know to be able to assess right. the geopolitics of this. Certainly right now, it'll, it'll be a while, and even then, we won't really know a lot of this. There's certainly a, a link with Iran. We'll talk about why that is it has to be the case in the future. But the technology that they're using, one thing you have to understand, this the Gaza Strip is one of the poorer, least industrial places you could ever go on the planet. They are not making high technology weapons in Gaza. Everything they get is from somewhere else. And so the game right. is not, well, maybe in Gaza they just you know, had these, it's, they came from somewhere. And so everybody's playing the game of where did they come from? Uh, How did they say that they have a hundred thousand more, you know, because if they got a hundred thousand more rockets, those had to come from somewhere. They are not being produced in factories in Gaza. Uh, This is not a, a highly industrialized nation. This is not a place that has great means. This is a place of abject poverty, high density. It is a terror controlled group that the terrorists in charge have been exploiting the people and everybody else around them so that they can effectively do battle with Israel. So some of the geopolitics of this is this was a proxy from the beginning through Gaza. If you've ever been around there, you realize this is not something that was just cooked up by people in Gaza and perpetrated on Israel. This is a deeper geopolitical conflict than the kind of one-off stuff that you see a lot of the time. And that's another reason why it's such a big deal is once you start to get to the bottom of that, does it lead to something that's much bigger, broader? Do more countries get involved? Is this something that tips or upsets the balance in the Middle East? Is it not? I mean, those are the questions that would lead us to say this is a little bit different than what what we've seen the last four or five years. It's definitely an escalation. It's an entirely different level of attack than what Israel is used to seeing from Hamas. 
It's no secret that Iran is backing Hamas and Hezbollah, trying to destabilize the region in various ways and for various reasons. But Iran supporting Hamas, and the interesting thing about it is you have 2.3 million people living in the Gaza Strip. 80% of them rely on international aid for their living. Hamas has been in charge of the Gaza Strip since 2007. Since 2007, and I want you to think about this, you've got two different approaches you can take. You can still claim that you're refugees and you can still get international aid, but Gaza has a shoreline with the Mediterranean. They can ship goods in and out. They have a border with Egypt and they can ship goods in and out through Egypt. And so the leadership of Gaza could say, our goal is to make a better life for our people. That has not happened. Instead, our goal is to play the victim card and try to eradicate Jews. This isn't just trying to eradicate the nation of Israel. This is actually trying to kill Jewish people. So it's a failure, and it's very sad in some ways because it's not necessary that the people who live in the Gaza Strip should continue to live under the circumstances that they do. And so this has been an es- and they are pawns in the escalating game of trying to kill the Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that something that's been almost as shocking as the attacks themselves has been some of the response in support of the Palestinians. For a long time, you've seen that that for some reason, and, and I've really tried to wrap my head around this this week, and I don't really understand completely why this is the case. But there is a progressive impulse in the West, in the United States, in Europe, to back the Palestinians against Israel. And the narrative kind of goes like this. The Palestinians were there first. They have been colonized and victimized by Israel. And so advocating for the Palestinians is an advocacy for a people group who's being oppressed that needs to be freed and returned to their rightful land. That's that's the way the narrative sometimes goes uh, for the support of the Palestinians. But the, the victimology of the Palestinians narrative, though, is fundamentally flawed in several ways. Some of these you'll see if you go to Israel, uh, because what you see is the Israelis, the setup in Israel is different than any other country on earth because of this mm-hmm. difficulty. And the things that they provide, the money, the support, the security to Arabs and Palestinians who are within Israel and who are on the border of Israel is unlike any other arrangement in the world. Secondly, the Palestinians are victims more than anything else of their own leaders, more than they are of Israel. And this was interesting. I saw that Walter Russell Mead, who's a Wall Street Journal columnist, who's just written a book on Israel in the United States, wrote a column called Hamas's Global Test for Biden. And in his the main point of the column is talking about what will Biden do geopolitically here? This this blow up is the worst thing that could happen to the Biden Middle East foreign policy. But before he gets there, he made a really interesting point about this narrative of supporting the Palestinians. He says Gaza is burning as Israeli forces methodolo- meth- methodically proceed to dismantle its structures of terror. The coming retribution will be terrible. But it is necessary and just. Hamas has lost the right to rule Gaza. The attacks here from Israel are on this terrorist group that has been ruling Gaza. And the civilian casualties that result are not going to be like the civilian casualties that resulted when Hamas attacked Israel. It will be because they warn people to leave and the terrorist groups do not let them leave and hide their missiles in schools and hospitals and apartment buildings. And uh, by hiding behind people as human shields, innocent people will have to die. Mead's point of view, though, is whatever it takes to get rid of Hamas won't just be great for Israel. It will be good for the Palestinians. Um, And so some of that narrative, I think, needs to be inverted. And you're seeing all these people stand up for the Palestinians. We should all stand up for the people, the civilians who have not perpetrated any of these crimes, who truly are victims. Although a lot of people have pointed out, when you look at those videos, it's not just terrorists that are rejoicing over the desecration of these these people's bodies. 
But for the people in Palestine, for the people among the Palestinians that truly are being held hostage, the best thing that could happen to them is that they would be rid of their rulers, which is Hamas. And so that's a dynamic that often escapes notice in this narrative of, of victimization is it starts with Hamas itself. Yeah, I, oh, I think that's definitely true. And I'll give you a little more evidence for that. Uh, let me say this to begin with, though. It, the 2.3 million people who are in the Gaza Strip, I have compassion and sympathy, and we need to be praying for those people because they love their children too. There is not a moral equivalency here. Israel isn't going to go in and do the horrendous acts, uh, which we'll just cover it with that word, the horrendous acts that were done to them. Nevertheless, uh, I am sympathetic to people uh, who are going to be hurt in this because of the rulers that they have. On the other hand, I want to point out a little bit of the hypocrisy of this. You have Israel, which is a state of nine million people. That's it. Nine million people surrounded by Muslim nations of almost 500 million people. Egypt, Saudi, Jordan, all the nations around them, about half a billion people. So think about this for a minute. We had more than 2.3 million illegal crossings in the last year in our southern border. And it wasn't easy to accommodate that. It's a bit of a crisis, isn't it? We've had two, over 2 million the year before, over 2 million this year have crossed illegally across our southern border, and we're dealing with those people. Now, you have 2.3 million people in the Gaza Strip, and Egypt has a border with them. I, I want to point this out. Those 2.3 million people, all of them could be relocated amongst the half billion Arab nations around them, but they haven't been for decades. And you have to stop and ask yourself, why is that? Why is it that Egypt also has a barrier between Egypt and the Gaza Strip? So it turns out that I'm more sympathetic for the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip because not only are they the pawns of Hamas and they've been brainwashed by Hamas, they're willing pawns in, in too many cases, but they are also pawns of their fellow Muslim nations around them. If the United States can take in the population of the Gaza Strip in illegal aliens two years in a row, how easy would it be if there really was a will to solve this problem? So I, I just want to point out to you that this problem is more hypocritical than we realize it is. Yes. And so standing up for the Palestinian people is a little hypocritical when you think how easily this problem could be solved by the fellow Muslim nations around them. Well, for example, the U.S. is you know working to have these safe corridors for evacuation of of Palestinian civilians, which would need to go to Egypt because that's that's the way out if you're not going to put them right. on ships and take them somewhere else. Egypt refused. Egypt does not right. want a bunch of refugees from uh, from Gaza coming into Egypt. So, right. again, this is not to say, oh, the you know Palestinian civilians are the worst people and you know nobody wants them. It is to say. Even their Muslim neighbors see that there's a problem here with this narrative of this is just a bunch of innocent people looking for a good life and uh, looking to flourish where they are. This is really a difficult situation uh, with the, the whole culture of Gaza is a difficult situation. Certainly the head uh, of their government, the people that are the heads of Hamas are making this much, much worse. Uh, but it, but it's yes. a thorny situation all around, and the Muslim nations surrounding Israel not only do, not only are many of them hostile to Israel, they are hostile to the people in Gaza because they are useful in agitating Israel. Yeah, I have great compassion for the children in Israel and the children in the Gaza Strip because they have uh, they are being used uh, as pawns of Hamas and as pawns of the power brokers around them. And I think our President Biden was right in calling these actions pure evil.
Well, let's let's talk about some of the players in this conflict. So we've we've talked a little bit about Israel. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Hamas, Iran. What what are the other things that help to make sense of what's going on right now? Let me go to the West Bank, and which is on the eastern side of Israel, but it's on the west bank of uh, the Jordan River. And you tend to think of that area, that's the largest area, where Israel did pick up that territory in 1967, just like they picked up the Gaza Strip in 1967 in the Six-Day War. Whereas they left the Gaza Strip in 2007, they have not yet left entirely the West Bank. But the West Bank, you're not hearing much about that right now. The West Bank is governed by the Palestinian Authority. These are, uh, if you think of Yasser Arafat 20, 25 years ago, he was a terrorist. Nevertheless, Israel allows the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah Party, to uh, really rule most of the West Bank. Most of the West Bank is self-governed by Palestinian people through the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority started out governing Gaza, but in 2007, Hamas threw them out. So the West Bank, I want to contrast this a little bit. Whereas Israel and the Palestinian Authority have their issues, we don't see this happening there. You see movement towards a more sustainable long-term coexistence. Hamas, however, isn't interested in a solution. I think perhaps the Palestinian Authority is trying to find a way to live together. In the north, you have Hezbollah, which is another terrorist organization, and they are basically in Lebanon, which is a failed state. Uh, Lebanon as a government can't control, it's sort of like Mexico and the cartels. There are certain parts of Mexico that the Mexican government fundamentally does not control, the cartels do. That's the way Hezbollah is in Lebanon. Hezbollah is also funded by Iran. So on the south with Hamas, the north with Hezbollah, and right next door to the east in the West Bank. And the question is not whether Hezbollah and Hamas will ever settle with Israel. They will not. Their goal is to is not really the eradication of Israel. It's the death of the Jews. The West Bank has proved to be a better partner for peace, as rocky as it has been, has been a better partner for peace. So I think you'd have to say that you have the terrorist organizations, Hezbollah and Hamas, but without Iran bankrolling them and funding them, they would be very, very small players. So I think the key players in this little axis of evil is Iran backing international terrorism. Just for people to give you a sense of the West Bank, this the West Bank begins on the east side of Jerusalem, goes to the Dead Sea, extends north. The biggest city, uh, notable city in the West Bank is Hebron, which is not exactly the same as the biblical city, but it's in the same, same general area. Bethlehem uh -huh. is in the West Bank. Jericho is in the West Bank. So just to give you a sense of where this is, um, the other thing too is, some of the major players have shifted in uh, the last six years because the Trump administration and the Biden administration have very different different ways of going about things in the Middle East. And so if, if you have Iran supporting these two groups, uh, the Palestinians through Hamas, Hezbollah in the north, you also have uh, different groups in the Muslim world who are vying against each other for supremacy in the Middle East. And probably the easiest way to, to put this, this is a little bit simplistic, is the Trump administration decided to organize their Middle East policy around Saudi Arabia, which allowed uh, things like the Abraham Accords, that there would be kind of an Israeli and one slice of the Arab world which is represented by Saudi Arabia, to develop relationships economically, uh, passage between these countries. The Biden administration, going back to the Obama era uh, outlook on the Middle East, has, has chosen mostly to run their foreign policy in the Middle East through Iran, through the Iran deal, trying to re-enter re that. It's been kind of interesting to watch. Iran has been resistant to the Biden administration's advancements. But 
the moment you shift that, what's happened is this is an intra-Muslim rivalry that you have just changed right. sides on. And so some of what's going on isn't even about Israel as much as right. it is about these different players in the Middle East. And that that may be a better indication of why now, uh, who, who might get involved, uh, what are going to be the longer term implications in the Middle East of this? What are your thoughts on why this may have happened now? Yeah, that's a great point. You raise a good point that Iran is Shia Muslim, and it is a theocracy, meaning that their head of their government is their religious authorities. They are at odds with Sunni Muslims who are not theocracies. They have a government and they are religiously Muslims. So they would stand together, in name at least, against Israel. But for the Sunni nations and all the other nations that you can think of, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, all of those nations are, are predominantly Sunni Muslim. And Iran has a, a goal of not only destroying Israel, but ruling the Muslim world. Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapon and its uh, conquest effectively of Iraq after the Iraq war has made it the, the dangerous player in the Middle East because they are so radical, but it's not only dangerous to Israel, but also a common foe in some ways with the Sunni Muslim nations around them. So what you see throughout history is Egypt has already has an agreement with Israel. I'm not saying they love each other, but they're not fighting each other. They have mm -hmm. some kind of relationship. Jordan, who is also borders Israel, has a relationship with Israel. I'm not saying they love them. I'm not saying their press releases say we love Jewish people, but they're not fighting them. They're mm -hmm. cooperative in certain economic ways. Uh, and so the Abraham Accords extended that to several other Sunni Muslim nations. Why are these Muslim nations interested in doing some kind of a relationship with Israel? because they see Israel is not their main threat. Israel's not trying to conquer them, but Iran is. And right. so you have this very complicated relationship. What has been going on recently is you notice that uh, the Trump administration started uh, a historic agreement between the Saudis and the Israelis. And the Biden administration has pursued that to some extent. Again, you, they have not made, they've alienated Saudi Arabia by backing Iran. Iran would bring conquest to the Middle East, and the Saudis and the other Sunni nations know that. But recently, the Saudis have been talking to the Israelis, and this is a good time. This action forced the Saudis to say, hey, you notice they didn't say we support Hamas. No one has said we support Hamas, but they have mm -hmm. said we're against Israel. And so it, it disrupted those talks. Why are those talks going on? Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, said in an interview recently that if Iran was able to obtain a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia would be compelled to obtain a nuclear weapon. Well, where do you think you might get a nuclear weapon if you're Saudi Arabia? Well, you have a nuclear neighbor, Israel. And so my point is that uh, Saudi Arabia is playing their geopolitical game and it's not entirely anti-Israel. So back to your question, knowing that there are two reasons I think this happened now. One is it's in Iran's best interest to disrupt any kind of coexistence between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And this certainly put uh, a spoke in the wheels. But the second reason, the more immediate reason is October 7th, 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. On October 7th, in 1973, both the Egyptians and the Syrians invaded Israel, and it was a very close-run thing. Since that time, Egypt has come to terms with Israel. Syria has not. They're controlled by Iran and Russia, but the other Muslim nations have. And so to pick this anniversary to invade, if you will, Israel by Hamas is a way of trying to rally the Muslim world against Israel again. So I think the timing 
on the day was to be at the 50th anniversary of, of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I think the timing from Iran's point of view is to disrupt any coziness uh, and and break apart any alliances that might be forming with Israel. So one of the questions that we've been getting a lot beyond you know the geopolitical realities here, which we could talk about endlessly, and I think this, we've covered a good intro, but you can't obviously talk about everything that's going on there. There's a lot of complexity. As Christians, there's another dynamic. This is not just geopolitical. This is not just uh, mm-hmm. you know what's going on in Israel. A lot of the questions have to do with what's going on here that might relate to the end times. So what do you think the connections might be here for the end times? Is this the beginning of Armageddon? Should we be expecting things in the future? What what connections are we making? Well, just to put it very simply, let me just say that all Orthodox Christians believe in Armageddon. We believe that the book of Revelation is true. The big question, and Christians can honestly disagree about this, is in exactly what details is it true? Exactly how will it be true? So let me put some things together. First, in Muslim, I'm painting with a broad brush, in Muslim end times, it will be, uh, there will be a, a return and a great battle, and it will be a battle between Muslims and fighting the Jews. So basically, what you see here is a certain group of Muslims, particularly Iranian Shia Muslims, battling the Jews. And this plays into the air end time scenario. From a Christian point of view, we know that there will be a battle against Israel from their neighbors, if you will. And so if you have the view that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years, and before that, there's going to be seven years of trial where the neighbors of Israel attempt to destroy them, but Jesus will return and will be victorious. Who will he be victorious over? Well, those two end time scenarios come together very nicely. And so when you're a Christian who holds that view and you see the Muslims trying to destroy the Jews, it plays into this idea that this is probably what Revelation is talking about. Add to that a couple other ingredients between prophecies in Daniel and the book of Revelation, most people who hold to the thousand-year reign of Christ after the seven years of tribulation, the battle of Armageddon where Christ destroys the enemies of Israel, most of them see China and Russia as potential uh, players in this drama from various symbology. So let me just boil it down and say this. If you're a Christian and you're looking at Christ returning, defeat the enemies of the Jews, reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. You see China and Russia and Muslims as the potential bad guys. And here they are all three allied together. And here comes an escalation in the war with Israel. So from that point of view, there are many, many Christians who would look at this and say, this seems to be playing out in a very immediate way the revelation end time scenario. So I think it's it's alarmed many Christians as playing into what they understand as the way this prophecy will be fulfilled. Yeah, so that that's a maybe in certain Christian circles that's a majority view. I would say in mm-hmm. global Christianity that's a minority view of reading uh, the end times. Uh it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, China and Russia are now seen as being the obvious candidates for some of these prophecies. But the situation was very different right after the fall of the Soviet uh, Union. Right. Because the Soviet Union was supposed to be the one that, you know, was going to fulfill these prophecies. And, right. you know, during the Reformation, nobody cared about Russia and China. Uh, they were talking about other forces and other nations fulfilling some of these prophecies um, even the Catholic Church, you know, in some of the Reformation right. commentaries on this. So so oftentimes some of these things take a flavor from current geopolitics that fit into these prophecies. Um, what's another way of reading this scenario among Christians? Yes, uh, probably if you don't 
understand the end times as being predominantly being played out in geopolitical terms, that the prophecies of Revelation aren't necessarily about geopolitical players, but more about, uh, let me quote Ephesians, the forces of evil in the spiritual realms. In that view, you would look at this as another example of spiritual warfare, of Satan attempting to stir up dissension and war and destruction. Anytime you see what I would call in this situation, undisguised, blatant evil, you can be sure that Satan has a hand in that and rejoices in it. Mm-hmm. So we as Christians, I think, regardless of your end times scenario, look at this and say, Satan is increasing his activity and is at work in the world. Personally, I take that as a sign that Satan sees his doom and Satan's uh, desire, he lashes out. Uh, he doesn't see his inevitable defeat as a reason to turn away. He sees it as a reason to double down on death and destruction. And so I do see this as the hand of Satan in the world uh, playing out his inevitable scenario. And that is not a surprise to us. We understand that it isn't just people doing evil things. It is Satan behind them directing evil in the world. I would hope that this is a bit of a wake-up call or a reminder, perhaps, to Christians that we do indeed face an enemy in the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, this also brings up questions of what is the relationship between Christians and the nation of Israel? And there's a lot of different ways to approach right. that and a lot of different opinions on that. Um Certainly, there are great reasons to support Israel that have religious reasons and non-religious reasons. I mean, honestly, if you just look at this geopolitically, who's the country in that part of the world that is the most strategic ally for the United States and the West? Israel, far and away, because of their form of government, because of their innovation, because of their strategic location, because of their uh, willingness to partner with certain projects and ideals in the world. I mean... There's all of that for the reasons that we should support Israel. And then you have the whole dynamic of Christians, you know, in different various ways, thinking about the nation of Israel as the people of Israel, which I would maybe encourage people is not an exact one-to-one correspondence. Uh, These are not necessarily the Old Testament uh, people of Israel. However, if you just think about the religious and ethnic identity of Israel, the reason there is a state of Israel is because of the Holocaust. There, there were people yeah. talking about this before the Holocaust. But right. the reason this happened is because of the millions and millions of Jews that were killed during the Holocaust. And Israel as a, as a country is supposed to be a place of refuge in the homeland where, where uh, the Jews can go. And since the moment it became a country, they have the surrounding nations have been trying to exterminate them. And right. so there's a there's a huge moral reason for us to support the people of Israel and uh, to be concerned with what's going on there. It would be very ahistorical not to. It would be very amoral right. not to. It, the thing that's been interesting about some of the coverage on this is there's a there's a relief between the people of Ukraine and the people of Israel in a lot of the different groups. You know, mm-hmm. the the Biden administration. One of their first statements, they came out and talked about that everybody should basically lay down their arms and should not retaliate. You know, well, the the only people that were retaliating at this point were Israel because they were the ones that were attacked. Um, I've never heard anybody say that Ukraine, the Ukrainians should not retaliate. Um, That that has never been anybody's political line. But for some reason, people will say these kinds of things about Israel. And you've seen a lot of other responses. I think that alone is another reason to think about not just the geopolitical uh, reasons here, because geopolitically they're a victim, you know, and we should, you know, but most most narratives today favor victims. But there is something more going on here morally and religiously, uh, whether it's between the Muslims and the Jews, whether it's between the Jews and you know the history of anti-Semitism, whether it's um, the prevalence in the West. Outside, even outside of the Holocaust, of atrocities that have been committed against Jews. We need to be historically sensitive 
about uh, the uniqueness of the nation of Israel and of the Jews. And so in one way, if we were to treat this like any other geopolitical conflict, we would necessarily need to give support and um, aid to Israel. And if we think about this on a religious and moral framework, we should really be concerned with what's going on with Israel and how the world mm-hmm. can support them. And so any way you look at it, uh, there is some uniqueness here, but uh, the, the people of Israel do deserve our thoughts. They deserve our aid. They deserve our support. I agree. I think you see not just support for Israel amongst uh, Christians, you see it from secular people as well. As you mentioned, on practical grounds, Israel is the only democracy in that area. Israel shares Western ideas of justice and and freedom. Now, how well they implement that, how well does the United States implement that? Of course, we're not perfect, but there is a, a shared vision of justice and a shared basis for freedom. So there are a lot of secular people that support Israel for that reason. For as Christians, that we support them because of those visions of justice and truth, but also because there's a kinship, because we are, in some sense, people who worship the same God. Uh, We obviously don't agree about the Messiah, but there is a certain kinship toward the Jews And uh, I do think, Bill Cole, that I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me that throughout history, there have been waves of anti-Semitism, meaning waves of, let me just put it in a lighter way, waves of bias against the Jews as a people. Mm -hmm. Because you pointed out that by every other standard, if you just change the name of Israel and this was not Jewish people, this was pick another name. It makes Mm -hmm. Somalis. It makes no difference. The narrative would be these people are being victimized. And no matter what you think about the history of should they be there, shouldn't they be there? It's just not okay to murder them. And so they would be the victims. But they're not in some circles. And that's because they're Jewish. And so Mm -hmm. this bias against the Jews, there's a rise, it seems to me, of anti-Semitism in the world, particularly on the political left in the Western world. What do you think? Do you see a rise in them being treated differently because they are Jewish, ethnic Jews? Yeah, I just don't think there's any way around it. I I don't know that I could explain to you, and here's why. But there's no way around saying that some of the reason people react the way they do towards Israel is because that they are Jews. And uh, while I do not think that there is an inherent anti-Semitism in Islam, there is certainly an animosity in the Quran. There is an animosity in the history between the Muslims and the Jews in that area. Some of it motivated religiously, some of it motivated just geopolitically and practically. Uh, But I do think that causes that value and uh, promote nations like Iran, which is a Muslim theocracy, are going to have some embedded uh, animosity towards Israel. It, it really is kind of a zero-sum game in some of these Muslim countries. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, I've seen several examples of American Muslims who have come out and said, this is horrible and this should not be done. Yes. We should support Israel. So I'm not, I'm, not, right. I'm not painting with that broader brush. I'm just saying the more that uh, you're forced to choose sides in the Middle East, the more you're going to see some inherent anti-Semitism pop up in every approach to issues like this. Now, that's been true, actually, in the West in ways that have nothing to do with Islam. And so there's a whole other side of this. If you just look through right. the history of Europe, there's been widespread, like you said, kind of seasons of anti-Semitism. And uh, the Jews have been victimized in Western culture over and over and over again. And so I just don't think we can escape that. I don't think we can tell this whole story. I certainly don't think we can talk about this morally until we acknowledge that fact. I agree. And, you know, lest uh, you get the impression that I'm here to make an apologetic for Israel, I will tell you, having studied their history and their policies, the government of Israel does not have entirely clean hands the government of Israel has done things wrong. The difference here, and where I think we need to be careful, is not, I don't think there's any problem with calling out the things Israel has done wrong, but we want to be very careful that we establish a moral equivalency because there is not a moral equivalency. 
the things that Israel has done that I wish they had not done that I think might be unjust in certain circumstances pale in comparison to murdering innocent people. I, I just think we need to be careful here that we don't fall into the ditch on either side. One is Israel's never been wrong and the Palestinians have never been right. That's not true. But also not to fall into the ditch and say, well, you know, everybody's there are fouls on both sides. They're offsetting mm -hmm. fouls. No, they're not offsetting fouls. Uh, the history of terrorism and the murder of innocent uh, children and women and civilians is not morally equivalent to what's happened. So we need to be a little more discerning than to just jump into the ditch on either side of this argument. Yeah. And that's that's going to be an interesting thing that that uh, develops in all of this. You know, there, there's a lot of um, dispute right now over the governance in Israel. Netanyahu is a very divisive leader. He I think a lot of people are very thankful that he is the leader right now because he's somebody that you would want overseeing the response to Hamas. You saw yesterday they formed a wartime coalition government bringing in all the different groups. I mean, so there's there's mm -hmm. the willingness to unite behind him and put aside what are very significant political differences in in the country of Israel. Uh, but you're also seeing people criticize uh, Netanyahu for things that have come together to create this uh, environment. I will say one of the things I was the most shocked about, having spent a little bit of time in Israel and having studied quite a bit about Israel, is the intelligence failure of the Israeli Defense Force and the Mossad and everybody else that's involved in that uh, before these attacks was pretty stunning. And there will certainly, I heard Michael Oren talking about this maybe on Monday of this week, there will certainly need to be some postmortem done in Israel after this conflict is over. And uh, mm -hmm. there, there will certainly be uh, some recompense for why their intelligence services were not more on top of what's happening. And that will be a reflection on Netanyahu's government. Um, I, I, did, I saw an article in the Washington Post by Yuval Noah Harari, who is Jewish ethnically, very progressive, atheist. Um, he is one of those people you would expect to be criticizing the nation of Israel at every turn under Netanyahu's leadership. Again, he is very sympathetic to his people and to the nation when it's being attacked. But even in this, even in this uh, article of support for Israel, he couldn't help but take a few shots at Netanyahu and populism and the hubris of mm -hmm. the state of Israel. So there's a lot of sides to this. There's a lot of things that are going to play out. Certainly Israel, like I said, we have to kind of resist the impulse to say that the people of Israel now and the government of Israel now is essentially like the people of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses at their head. This is, these are not the same thing. Um, and, right. and they are not perfect. And uh, nobody's making that case. But if you just zoom out a little bit, if it weren't Israel, this would be so clear cut for people to say, this group of people deserves our support. They deserve our aid. What's going on is horrible. And uh, right. they should vindicate themselves against the terrorists on their borders, which kind of leads to the last of two questions. What do you think the response will and should look like? Well, from a practical point of view, I want you to probably the easiest way to think about it from a practical point of view, what's likely to happen, what is understandably going to happen, uh, whether you say it should or it shouldn't. Think about the United States of America on the day after 9-11. If George, if all the nations of the world had said, well, you, you need to not make too big a deal out of this and let's not let's not attack anybody and let's not run the risk of killing anybody here. And George Bush had come out and said, yes, we don't want to overreact. We think we're going to negotiate. Uh, he would have, his government would have fallen one way or another. He could not survive in government and legitimately so, because even the Bible in Romans 13 talks about one of the most foundational roles of government is to punish evildoers and reward the good. In other words, protect your people who put you into power. That is one of the uh, one of the signs of a legitimate government. So, of course, we can't even imagine heeding calls to, to take it easy and don't overreact after September 11th. There's no way this government can possibly can remain legitimate, nor can they remain in power unless 
they changed their strategy from containing Hamas to effectively, one way or another, eliminating Hamas. They are an existential threat to Israel. This government has no choice. So whether you think it's right or you think it's wrong, this is what will happen. And I think from a biblical perspective, you can look at this some other ways. But fundamentally, uh, there is at least a sense in which this government in Israel must act to prevent this from happening to its people. That would be true for any government that had suffered uh, this kind of uh, horrendous attack. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be an easy process. Um, You're reading all kinds of stuff. The FT's got some good coverage on this, on what it is going to take for Israel to basically uh, get Hamas out of power in Gaza. It's going to be very brutal. It's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, and so that right. leads us to the last thing is how should we be praying for what's going on? It's difficult sometimes to know how to pray in a situation like this. I suppose I'd start by saying in the words of Psalm 122 that I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And of course, I think we pray for the grief for those who've lost loved ones, those who have uh, members of their family that are being held hostage. We pray for them. We pray for God's comfort for them. I think we pray that uh, people will come to their senses and these hostages would be released. I think it's a little harder to know how to pray for the people in the Gaza Strip. I think it's easy to fall into the narrative, which is not entirely true, that the people are all victims and they are just have a handful of evil terrorists ruling over them. And unfortunately, that's not entirely true. From the time that these young men who committed these atrocities were little kids, they were indoctrinated all through their lives that Jews were subhumans. Jews needed to die. Jews deserved to die. And when you brainwash a child all their life, you get young men who are able to do and commit some of the atrocities that we've seen. There's a great deal of support in the Gaza Strip for what Hamas has done. So it's not a situation of entire innocence. On the other hand, there are no little children in Gaza that deserve what the fate that their rulers are about to impose upon them. And so I feel a little helplessness to know how to pray in that situation. And here's where I've landed, is I pray for hearts to change. I pray that they will allow those women and children to leave, that Egypt will allow them to leave the Gaza Strip and go to safety. And I know that sounds hopeless, that God might just change their hearts. And it is hopeless for us. But we need to remember we serve a God who's able to do things that I think are impossible. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.